Father, we worship you and we praise you. We thank you. We love you. Father, we pray for your will this this morning. I pray for the filling of your Holy Spirit, Father. That only your words, your heart, flows through. God, we come before you hungry as there is a nation that is hungry, a world that is hungry. You have said of your creation that each of us were created with a portion inside our spirit that longs for you, even if we don't know who you are. Father, there is a world that longs for you even though many do not know you. You use your bride, you use your children to be a bridge, to be a link between them and Jesus, and then Jesus is the link for all of us to you. Thank you, Jesus. We worship you. You are our King. You are our Messiah, our Savior. I thank you, Lord, that in John 15, you opened it up to friendship. That you revealed your true intent was not merely followers, but passionate followers and friends. Thank you. I thank you, Jesus. We love you. We invite your Holy Spirit here. He is already here. Do your will this morning. In Jesus' precious name, amen. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. I want to begin by reading a verse Actually, a couple of verses. But then we're going to go back. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning with verse 1, says this. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as them, which we're going to talk about the them here in a second. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. What an extraordinary statement. The first part that I want to point out is that first phrase. Now that the opportunity for his rest, or how's he word it? Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands... We're going to go back and read because the, what the writer here of Hebrews says, he talks about the rest that was offered to the children of Israel that they forsook when they stepped away in fear after the ten spies said that they couldn't take the land. So even now, after Jesus Christ, that rest still stands. 
But what I want to point out before we go back into this is what that rest really is. I mean, when we think of rest, we think of kicking back on a Saturday afternoon on the deck and beautiful sunny day and just relaxing. Nothing to do. All the weeds have been pulled. I don't have to do any more work. (laughs) Right? That's rest. But is it? See, it's not the rest that God talked about, because if you look at the children of Israel 40 years later that went into the land, it was hardly restful. In fact, the very first thing they did when they got into the land was fight. They went to war. So it wasn't going into the land and all of a sudden all of their enemies just kind of left and they could rest on into the land. What is the rest then? What is the rest that is available to us today? See, we're not called to that land. That's reserved for the children of Israel. We're not called into that part of this world. So what is the rest? If he says that rest is still available to us, what is that rest? I want to say it is the culmination of what we talk about literally every week. It's the culmination of relationship. It is the production of relationship. I want you to turn to Galatians. And then we're going to go back. Hold your place in Hebrews 4. But I want you to go to Galatians chapter 5. And I'm just going to read verse 22. It says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So what is pointed out right here is exactly what that rest is. That rest is not in the circumstances around us. If it is, we're in trouble. If it is, then we do not see rest on the horizon for quite a while. Because of the position that the bride is in now, this position of separation, this position of drawing a line, This position of separating those out who do know him as Savior. There's no relaxation in that. Every time you see in the word of God that his children are judged through his justice, it's not a time of rest. It's not a time of relaxation. In fact, if, if we look at the children of Israel as any kind of example... It's usually occupation. It's slavery. It's literally stealing their free will. Humanly in this world. (laughs) Isn't that exactly what we see going on? I mean, think about it. Think about the times in which we live. Think about the times in which we are entering into. And yet, going back... 
The writer of Hebrews says, the promise of entering his rest still stands. So why don't we see that? Why don't we understand his rest? Why don't we feel the love, the joy, the peace? Oh, wow, especially the peace. Why don't we feel the peace in times of great turmoil? In times where everything seems unfair. Everything seems raw against us. How can I have peace in that? How can I have peace when I know what the Lord wants for this country and yet it looks the opposite? How can I have peace in that? And really, that's, that's an important question. Because, see, we can say we have peace and not really have peace. Well, I, I'm okay with it. I'll just grin and bear it. That isn't peace. When... We are in turmoil in our lives. The peace is the understanding that as a child of God, I can place the control where it is anyways. And that's with God. That's the peace. That's the peace in knowing that He loves me no matter what I walk through. He loves me and He will do His will in me if I let Him. I can have peace in that. How did Daniel walk into the lion's den fully at peace? Or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walk in or be thrown in or walk in, however they got in there, I'm not sure, into the fiery furnace. And yet they told the king, they said, whether it is Father's will for us to perish or not is up to him. Either way, we will not serve your gods. We will only serve him. See, that takes an internal peace to be able to say that. That takes an internal peace to know that God is in control when things come against you that are wrong. God is in control. The county trying to get us out of this home. We could get upset about that. We can get all stirred up inside about that. Or we can have peace that it's in God's hands. I could tell you that's where my peace is. That doesn't mean we don't do anything. Because see, God may direct you to do things that you need to do. But it still doesn't take away from the peace that you're following in His will. That's the peace. That's the love. That's the joy. If you don't have that in your life, if you don't have peace, if you don't have love, if you don't have joy, and it is not a deep-seated place between you and God, then you have to ask Him, how, how do I achieve that rest that you promise? How? The very next word explains it. Back in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, after he says, promise of, of entering his rest still stands, let us fear. Let us fear. Now, the word there can be misconstrued. That doesn't mean let's, let us be afraid of God and run away. 
like the children of Israel did with those in the land. There is a fear that God requires for you to build relationship with Him. Perhaps a better word is awe. But you know what? Awe just doesn't encompass what it's supposed to be because I think we become very flip with who God is. We become very flip with our relationship with Him at times. You know what's interesting to me though? The closer you get to God in relationship with Him, the less flip it becomes. The more you recognize He is not the man upstairs. He is not the guy who gives you things. He's not just the guy who saved you from hell. He's the Creator. He's the Creator. He knows you intimately in everything that you are. Intimately. He knows you better than you know yourself. Do you know Adam was not the only creation? Do you know that? It's pretty wild to think of that. Did you know you're actually a creation? I mean, scientists would tell you you're a procreation. You're really a substantive derision from something that was created a long time ago. Whatever. No, you're a creation. Let me tell you why. Because in every person's life, what is handed down from the parents is a single DNA. We all have a single DNA, complex strand of DNA. But do you know life starts with one cell? One cell. And yet from that one cell... It then duplicates and duplicates and duplicates. All of the sudden, within that one information strain, you have the same information telling this cell to become a heart. And this cell to become a liver. And this cell to become lungs. See, do you see, that's not written in our DNA like that. Because it's handed down from a single strand. So if you don't think God is hands-on in creating you and creating every creation of his children, then you're confused. He has his hands in every cell division in your body. It goes back to Hebrews 11.1 that the very atmosphere, everything in this world is held up by the power of Jesus' word. Right? Right? So he's intimately involved in everything that you do. He knows us. See, that's the awe. That's the reverence. It doesn't mean that we can't have fun with him. We do. Where do you think humor came from? Satan didn't invent it. He didn't invent anything. God loves humor. God loves relaxation. God loves having fun. 
But it cannot replace who He is. He is our Creator. He's God. He is God who gave His Son to die for us. Who gave everything just for the possibility of this relationship that brings us into His rest. See, what is His rest? It's when you know you're in the will of God. See, that's rest. If I know I'm walking in His will, then I don't have to worry about the external darts. I don't have to worry about what comes against me. And by the way, things will. If we're walking in the will of God as His bride... Much like what happened to the children of Israel doesn't mean that you won't come up against difficult things. I mean, Israel came up against slavery. They were taken to Babylon for 70 years. I mean, for that matter, they were in Egypt as slaves for, I think it was 420 years. Talk about some harsh judgments against his own children, didn't change his love. But the writer here in Hebrews says, if you want that rest, it says, let us fear. Let us fear him. Let us hold him in awe, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Then he goes on to explain again why they did not reach it. But before we do that, I want to go back. I want to go back to chapter 3. Start at verse 5. This is talking about Moses and what, what the writer of Hebrews, who I think was Paul, but what the writer of Hebrews was doing was... Basically, sharing Jesus and who Jesus is as opposed to who some of Israel's fathers of the faith were. Abraham, Moses, David. So verse 5 says, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Right away, he's showing the difference between Jesus Christ and Moses. And this book was written to Jews, to the Jewish non-believer. That's who this book was written to. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. Those, those of us who have accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, we are his house, and indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, we know from looking at the past what that meant. That meant that the generation, the fighting generation, which was any 
anyone over, I believe it was 20, can't remember exactly, but over, over 20, except for Joshua and Caleb, were not going to enter the land. In fact, they were going to wander around this area, this desert, for 40 years. Till the last one died off. Then they'd be able to go again and attempt to go into the land. Now think about that. If you know geography at all, if you're familiar with that area at all, it's not a big area. I mean, to wander for 40 years... I mean, think about it. You could wander for 40 years in America and pretty much see everything a couple times. Right? There is so much smaller. They're walking around and they're just never making it to their destination. Why? Because God swore in his wrath that they would not enter his rest. They would not enter his peace. And yet, he kept offering it to them. He didn't offer them the promised land anymore. But he kept offering relationship to them throughout that 40 years. It's a very interesting dive in to study that 40-year period. Although, the writer of Hebrews sums it up here and, and, and just said that they were a disobedient group. Right? And that they were a group with hearts as in the rebellion. That they were rebellious toward God's will. So verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So he explains the reason why they never got in. Which in turn explains the same thing about us today, why we never get to feel his peace. Or when we don't feel his peace said it's because of an unbelieving heart. Because of an unbelieving heart. Now, there are many things that lead to an unbelieving heart. An unbelieving heart can just be birthed out of cynicism. I don't, I, I don't believe that God really speaks to us anyways. I don't believe that he really has hands-on. He kind of like created us put us in motion, and he's just going to kind of see who pleases him, you know, until, until they die and they go to heaven and then, you know, they get some kind of reward. Well, that takes about 95% of the Bible right out. Because, see, an unbelieving heart is not just about not believing that he is God or that Jesus is the Messiah. It's about believing who you are in Him. That's where it all begins, recognizing who we are in Him. Recognizing that we are loved, we are cherished. We are so important that He gave His Son. What an extraordinary thought. But you can't get even beyond that in relationship with Him if you don't understand how important you are to him. 
So that's where some of the unbelief can come because Satan will come in there and try and make you feel so unworthy of his love. Right? It's hit all of us. We've all felt that way. I don't deserve his love because of the choices I made long ago. I'm just kind of stuck with them. Oh, there is... There is nothing to God in the past that cannot be changed for the future. It just isn't. Because in God, he looks at who we are to him and how much he loves us. The unbelieving side is not on his side. It's on our side. Recognizing who we are in him. But then it quantifies what it means to have this unbelieving heart. It says, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Which, by the way, exhort one another. What is that? That's accountability. That's love. That is relationship horizontally. Relationship with each other within the bride holding each other accountable. We exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. In other words, don't wait. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See right there, it says sin is deceitful. You know, we think of sin as it hurts God. We think of sin as it separates us from God, right? And it does. What is the most devastating part of sin? The writer just mentioned it right here. It's the deceitfulness of sin. Because sin can be something that is obvious, but sin can also be something that is as simple as taking a yes and changing it to a maybe. Taking a, I know what you want me to do, and I'm going to delay that a little bit, or even perhaps choose something else. See, to the eyes of people, that wouldn't be noticeable. That w- there wouldn't be anything wrong in the eyes of people. But in the eyes of God, any variation from what He wants in our life gives the opportunity for deceitfulness of sin. What is deceitfulness? It's lying. (laughs) It's lying. You ever feel lied to? It's not good to feel lied to. How about when you lie to yourself? Boy, that's a whole different ballgame. Because if I blame myself for lying to myself, I'm admitting that I'm lying, lying, then I can't lie anymore. But that's what we do, because that's the deceitfulness of sin. And that keeps us from his rest. That keeps us from that love, that joy, that peace. It's not turmoil, again, let me say it, it's not turmoil that dictates our joy and our peace or our rest. It's not physical attributes 
or even mental anguish. It, it's not even that. You know, imagine the mental anguish that Paul and Silas and Peter and John and other times went through when they were beaten and then thrown into prison. And they sang and they worshipped. I mean, imagine, I, I don't know about you, but... And, and by the way, these are not little spankings. I know they don't have public school spanking, you know, nowadays. Right, Jim? They don't have that. When I was a little kid, they did. And it's a spanking. You go get a spanking. I, I was spanked a lot when I was a child. I won't go there. That's not what these little beatings were. See, these beatings that Paul, Silas, and Peter, and John, and many others had to deal with were something that was just short of their lives. Imagine that. Imagine going through that, being thrown in a dirty jail around people that perhaps deserved to be there, around guards that just were the ones that beat you, and then all you want to do in your heart is worship the Lord. Imagine that. Our external circumstances do not dictate our rest. Only our relationship with the Lord and our inner peace can dictate that. Because, see, Paul and Silas and, and the others, they were at peace. They were at peace after their lives were threatened. In fact, they were at peace when their lives were taken. Just like Jesus said on the cross, not my will, or the night before, not my will, but thine. Not my will, but thine will be done. We do not have to be led by our external circumstances. It is the deceitfulness of sin having been birthed that begins to form the barriers that keep us from that rest. Verse 14, For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, now, now again, let me point something out here. <laughs> Especially, Hebrews can be very confusing, chapter 6 and chapter 9, about this thing, because if you are looking through a lens of justification, of salvation, you know, accepting Jesus Christ into your heart, you get this golden ticket to heaven. If that is the lens that you're looking through this on, you're going to go off. You're going to have trouble. You will be deceived. Because that's not what this is talking about. When you are justified of your sin by inviting Jesus Christ into your heart, you are saved permanently from that point on. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. It's permanent. What Paul is talking, or the writer of Hebrews is talking about here, is a peace in that relationship. Because that is something we have to hold on to. 
And he says, if indeed, and this is verse 14, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, pressing in in relationship to the end. Verse 15, as it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For we who were those who heard and yet rebelled, or I'm sorry, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? Now I want to explain something. They did not go into the land. That cost them their peace. That cost them their rest. It did not cost them who they are as the children of Israel. God did not forsake that nation at that point and start again. Could have. In fact, there was even a time where he talked about doing it and Moses and him had a conversation. Right? But what did happen is they lost their peace. They lost their relationship with him. What was lost at the point of disbelief when they chose not to go in the land could have been redeemed two weeks later. Could have been redeemed two years later, ten years later, in terms of the relationship. Not going into the land because the Lord had already given a judgment on that. But see, it wasn't about going into the land. It wasn't about that golden ticket going to heaven. It was about the life we live every single day here on earth with our Lord. That relationship that we have with him. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And pay attention to this verse. So we see that we were unable to enter because of unbelief. See, they were unable to enter the promised land because of unbelief. What was that? Unbelief that that land was theirs? No. No, they even said that. What was their unbelief? It was birthed out of fear. Fear that there are giants in the land. The Anakin are in the land. Effectively, the Nephilim are in the land. There's strength there that can overtake us. That fear was rooted in the disbelief that God could conquer it. Or that he would. That's why Caleb and Joshua were allowed to enter the land 40 years later. Because they did believe. It was granted unto them as righteousness. Their belief. They said, no, we can take them. So what? They're big. God's bigger. (laughs) If God said it, we can do it. See, it's so easy to let disbelief creep in. 
If God said that his children in this mystery called the church are going to flourish, are going to lead, are going to rule, how do we respond to that? Well, yeah, maybe after maybe after he comes, or or maybe after you change things. God, I know you said somewhere you're going to recreate the world, so maybe then, because I certainly don't see it now. I certainly don't see the landscape now making it the time for us to move forward, right? And on the surface, that makes sense. Think about it. Everything that we had, that we thought was turning around over the last four years for the Word of God is being dismantled. That could be disheartening. That's kind of like the children of Israel getting to the edge of the promised land, seeing, because God said he would let Moses see it, Right, Seeing the goodness of the land. Even having the fruit of the land brought back. Seeing how good it was. And then thinking, oh yeah, but the current circumstances are such that we can't have it yet. Yes, that is our land. But we can't have it yet. Because there are giants in the land. There are fortified walled cities. We don't have a city. We don't have much of anything. Do you see how easy it is to let disbelief creep in? Don't do that, church. Don't let disbelief creep in as to what the Lord has said. What He is doing. He is doing here in America. If your hopes were not on God doing this, then you're pretty confused right now. If your hopes and your prayers were hinged on Donald Trump being the savior of all this because God said that he would be in there for eight years, then that puts your focus on him. Now understand something. He is still there. He will and is our president for eight years, but he was never the savior. He's a warrior. He's a warrior just like we are supposed to be warriors. It doesn't mean God is not going to do this. In fact, it's when it gets so bad, when it doesn't seem like there's any other way except God, that finally his children seem to look at him like, oh, okay, it's you. Why? Why does it have to be that way? I'm telling you, God is going to do this. He is going to do this. I don't know when. Don't even care. Don't even care. Why? Because I could be at peace every single day until that moment. Knowing that He's in control. When I give Him my yes, He's in control of me. But this land is going to be taken by the bride. It will be through the hand of God. 
Because he will not share his glory with anybody. Any human. It will be taken. So let the nations rage. Let them war. Let them do whatever is within God's will for them to do. Because it is setting up the very glory that he will take of his own. But don't worry. Don't have unbelief. Don't allow that sin of disbelief in your heart that can fester and grow into other things. Doesn't mean we know how he's going to do it always. He will tell his prophets. He has, and he will continue. But him doing what he's going to do is not contingent upon us knowing everything and having to believe it into existence. Well, maybe it didn't happen because we didn't believe enough. No. In one way, that's true. Because if we were unified in him, Satan wouldn't have any power whatsoever. But Satan can't stop the unification that's coming. Because God's power is going to fall. His Holy Spirit will fall in power. And it will bring, it will bring events that can only be attributed to God. To no person. And you know what? This land is going to catch on fire. And I mean fire in a good way. In, pe- in people's hearts, it's going to catch on fire. And people are going to start seeing God for who he is. The fear of who he is. Not just this this creator somewhere that kind of doesn't pay attention to us. But all of a sudden, people are going to start realizing that he not only pays attention... But he holds us. He desires intimacy with us. Individually. Not let's get a big enough group together so God will pay attention to us. Do you know everything that God has done? Look at the word of God. Everything he has done was pinpointed down to either a small group or a single person. Why? Because those people were special? Because God wants to show that he can do it in anybody. Moses wasn't special. In fact, Moses kept trying to tell God, I'm not special. I can't even talk. But see, it wasn't about Moses having to be special. It was that his heart desired God. Desired intimacy with him that would not be stopped. Would not be stopped. I'm sure it was a shock for him to find out that, and you see it in scripture, but to find out that he's going to go back to Egypt and God's going to free his people after 400 years. Going to free him through him. And here he is, this shepherd, away from his people. You know, I, I, I don't blame Moses for his reaction. 
And it took a long time, actually, for God to finally get it through to him. I mean, he was out in the wilderness for 40 years. I think it was 40 years. Was it? Yeah. Just being trained by God, just building relationship with him. See, Moses didn't have to know how God was going to do it. Moses just had to know that his yes was important to God. And his walk with him was more important than any surrounding circumstances, no matter what it looked like. That's the key. I just want to read this last part in chapter 4, where I read first, starting verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. They were not unified together as a group. Oh, how powerful. How powerful a tiny group is when they're unified. How about Gideon and his 300? How powerful a group. And the power of them was they didn't even do anything. They held up lamps. Right? They held up torches. Those must have been some powerful torches. That's all they did. And then God took care of the rest. In fact, a, a, a single angel took care of the rest. So what really brought on that victory? Obviously, it was God that did it. But what really brought it on? It was their unity and belief in what he was doing. See, Gideon took a little convincing, but then Gideon believed. He's the one who laid the fleece down twice. Now, he didn't, by the way, that doesn't mean that Okay, well, that means I have to lay down a fleece every time God tells me to do something. No. God allowed that. And he allows fleeces. I'm not saying that either. But the point is, it came to a point where Gideon believed. He believed enough to call, I think it was 30 30 or 33,000, can't remember, down to the river. Or or call them out, and then it went to 10,000, 10,000 went down to the river. And then 300 came out of that. But they were unified. They were unified in what God was going to do. The children of Israel, when they finally did go into the land, they were unified. In fact, God tested them in that. He said, march around that city every day for seven days. Seventh day, march seven times. March around quietly. And then shout at the end. One of the most absurd things you would hear as... A war general. It's like, seriously? Oh, and by the way, put your worshipers out front. That just sounds kind of weird. But see, they believed. And in fact, they didn't just believe. They believed in unity to where they all did it. And what was the result? (laughs) The result was something extraordinary. You cannot recreate that today. 
You can't build a wall and then have a million people march around it, scream, and then have the wall come down. That isn't some scientific thing that a new super weapon, the voice of the million. No, it was God. It was God. It was God who took it down. But it wasn't over at that point. They still had to go in and they had to fight. So see, entering his rest, which was entering the promised land, it wasn't about rest like we think of as rest. It was about peace. It was about knowing that you are in the will of God no matter what. You are in his hands because your focus is on a different time, a different land. Just like in Hebrews 11, that new land that would be one day that had foundations built by God. That's where their focus was. It was on him, on what he was doing. So I just want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to just trust him. Just believe. Press in. That's your job. Build a relationship. Unify with the bride. Unify with others. And that means church to church. <laughs> I know that's kind of an unknown concept nowadays. But the whole bride is to be unified. And God is going to do it. It will, it will be his hand that does it. And I'm just going to close us in prayer. Father, we worship you and we praise you. We thank you for who you are, God. We thank you that you give us rest, not because of circumstances, but in spite of circumstances. We thank you, Lord, that no matter what we face, no matter where we are in the world, whether we're here, whether we're in Nigeria, whether we're in any other place in the world, by pressing into you, that rest is available. That love, that joy, that peace, that patience, the goodness, kindness. That is all available to us right now. And in gaining that, we also have to be united with each other. God, I pray for your bride that you would unite your bride. Bring her to a place of full trust in what you're doing. Not what things look like on the surface, but full trust of what you are doing. We thank you and we praise you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.